The Athletic. I've not cleared that. <laughs> oh no, Newport's the worst. Yeah. Oh, Newport was horrific. Brentford as well was pretty bad, wasn't it? Oh, Brentford. <laughs> There's loads of them. I've got I've got a list well, actually, here as well. It might be, it might be fifth worst. <laughs> Shit, I'm writing down Sheffield United and Brentford. <laughs> Also, the West Brom nil nil. I think probably could have been a. Would you know what? Gone after I've, that. I've got West Brom nil nil as the second worst. Yeah. Where does Brighton home rank? It was going to be fourth, but I'd forgotten about Sheffield United <laughs> and Brentford. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Pod on the Tyne, your go-to Newcastle United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. My name's Taylor Payne and coming up on this week's show, we'll be talking about the frankly disgusting performance at Brighton on Saturday night. Ryan Taylor relives his finest moment in black and white in the archive. It's the question on everyone's lips, why hasn't Steve Bruce been sacked yet? And as George has been jabbed and is a gibbering wreck after his trip to Brighton, Private Christopher Waffles and I will be joined for all of it by friend of the podcast and athletic scribe Michael Walker. Michael is sure to provide the kind of sunny optimism and carefree whimsy usually served up by Mr. Corgan. How are you doing, Michael? Are you well? It's been a while, mate. Yes, carefree, I would describe myself. (laughs) Yes, I believe the last time you were on the podcast, I described you as effervescent as well. Yes, there you go. So, I, nothing's changed. Outstanding. Nothing has changed, literally. Uh, anyway, but before we get into that uh, boiling cauldron of dog vomit, that was the Brighton game, um, I've got just enough time to remind you about the latest offer from The Athletic. You can subscribe to The Athletic UK right now for a special price of three ninety nine a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. Uh, you'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. Chris, how are you, sir? Are you okay? Well, it's two days, three days on from Brighton, and George had to make the trip, and I didn't. Well, George, actually, George chose to make the trip, so I'm not going to defend him in that sense. He did, no, no. He, he, he made, he elected to go all the way to Brighton to watch that. So He knew what he was doing. Um, it was funny, because on the way down, he, uh, he he called us just as he got to the outskirts of London. He was like, I, I sort of enjoyed this. This was sort of a, a change of scenery, and, and now I'm already bored already, and this was obviously several <laughs> hours before the game itself. Um, he just called me at full time, and he, he sounded like a broken man. Oh dear. Even more so than he usually does, which is yes, exactly. saying something. <laughs> so Chris, is there any, any specific articles or anything to watch out for this week coming from you? Well, George and I did do do a piece on the on the Brighton game, basically saying how it, it looked, smelt, and felt like the end yeah. for Steve Bruce. And but somehow here we are three days on later and it, it isn't the end. And we sort of put that in the article at the time. because um, I think there was a lot of thoughts on Saturday that, that he would he would go, but but Obviously, that hasn't proved to be the case. So we're sort of just trying to explain what happened on Saturday. I tried to to give insight into Steve Bruce's press conference and how he was similar or different to previous press conferences. And then also uh, Ryan Taylor. Yeah, I spoke to Ryan Taylor last week for a Cult Heroes series that we've got run on the Athletic at the minute. Each club writer is speaking to or writing about a different uh, cult hero from a club. And um, obviously, Over the Wall qualifies as that. So that will be up uh, on the Athletic. I think it'll go up on Thursday. And obviously, we'll have part of that interview for listeners to hear a bit later on. Excellent. Well, there you go. Uh, get yourself onto theathletic.com forward slash pod on the time to take advantage of the special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash 
pod on the time. Well, chaps, we can't put it off any longer. We're going to have to talk about that Brighton game, I'm afraid. Uh, lazy, uninspired, lacklustre, uh, the appearance of not caring, no fathomable tactical approach, no threat, no fight, no dynamism. Newcastle are playing like a team that's already been relegated, aren't they, Michael? Well, I, I actually don't know if you can say they're playing like a team that's already been relegated, but they're playing like a team that's, that's on its way to relegation. Um, it was... The lack of ambition is, um, you know, has been evident at times in other games, but I think I think to the wider watching world as well, it was it was pretty striking that here was a here was the Saturday night entertainment, and this is what Newcastle were offering. Um, it was so passive, um, and, and and just flat, and and yet you know. They they all there were moments where they almost got away with it. You know, it was like you know, George was talking about hanging on from kickoff, and that's what it felt like. And um, but if if um, Fraser's shot goes in, you know, it sort of it might have changed things. It might have been, you know they might have clung on to um, to get a point. But as as Chris said in in last week's podcast. Um, that lack of ambition is really striking because if you don't go to Brighton and try to win, and if you don't go to West Brom and try yeah, to win, exactly. then where are you going to go to try to win? Mm-hmm. And that is, to me, that is the, um, in terms of the team and the tactical setup of the team, that's the biggest issue. Obviously, the biggest issue at the club is the overall ownership structure, et cetera, et cetera, that we've known a long time. But in 2021, the uh, the team's biggest issue is that passivity, and and just that you know there's well that's it just it's just so passive. It is, and and Chris, they, they didn't even lay a glove on on Brighton, did they? Apart from that that Ryan Fraser effort that hit the post, there was very little to shout about, and I'm not even sure if they registered an actual shot on target, did they? Well, apparently the, the, the stats get, did give them one in the end because it would have been at right. one oh, stage well, they wouldn't have had Results. a shot on target either home or away against uh, against Brighton. But I think that I think it was the seventy fifth minute. It wasn't really a shot, and but but it counted as as one. I think I think Isaac <laughs> Hayden trying to head the ball across goal in the first half, but actually heading it out of play also counted as a shot, not a shot on target. But if a you shot hit the woodwork, that should count as a shot on target. I don't like that rule. Is it on the target though? I don't know if that's tar- that's not the target. Yeah, but it's is really it? the target good. isn't the post. It's really good hitting the post, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. If you know, the ball really hits good, the post, it's a really good noise, and it's a, if it hits the post the and goes in, a, it's generally the sign of a good shot. Yeah. If it hits the post and goes in, is that a shot on target and off target? You get one of each. Well, yeah. There you go. <laughs> It should do, but yeah, I mean Newcastle again playing with that with this split striker, strikerless, you know, false nine, false, false football team kind of approach that they have at the minute. Um, I just you, again, you don't see where the goals are going to come from, do you, Chris? It's just sort of it's there's just there's so little energy and so little dynamism in that team at the minute. I'm not I'm not really sure where it's going to come from. No, you, you don't see where the goals are going to come from. And when and when Michael talks about the, how passive they were, that's right. And what is perhaps most alarming is that my my understanding is that what Steve Bruce wanted Newcastle to do was to press high and to really try and get up right in that sense and try and win the ball high up the pitch. And we saw absolutely none of that. So whatever instructions were given didn't didn't come through in the game itself. And when they first changed to this formation and also when they played 
relatively well at home against Liverpool, albeit Liverpool still should have scored a few goals. It was about this high intensity. They were pressing higher up the pitch. They were trying to do that. And that that's completely gone now. And Almiron was important. He's so important to that side. And I can understand why Steve Bruce wanted to get him back into the team, but he didn't look 100% fit. And that was hard to actually judge because Newcastle had so little of the ball from actually do anything with. But the I just there's just no chemistry between between the front three and what they're trying to do. And there is no focal point for Newcastle to work off. And I, I just don't understand that the system in that sense is that is that it's not... If, if you're Liverpool and you have three forwards who can all move around and can all do different things and create all those problems, then I sort of get it. But Newcastle had three players on the pitch who whose goal-scoring records, Almiron's is the best of them, but it isn't brilliant. Mm, Joe Linton yeah. averages one in every 33 games or whatever. Ryan Fraser <laughs> hasn't scored for Newcastle yet. It's just... Yeah. And it, it beggars belief that you ha- if you've got two strikers on the bench, at what point are you going to bring them on if, if you're not going to bring them on when you're two and three nil down? Yeah. Why, why are they even on the bench? Because... If you're not going to change system at that point, then they may as well not have been in the squad. Michael, do, do, do Andy Carroll and Dwight Gale have a have a case to feel aggrieved here? Should they should they be getting the chance? I mean, they're not the greatest players in the world, but they do carry a goal threat, don't they? I think Dwight Gale deserves a chance. You know, yeah. I think Andy Carroll may have had his chance. You know, yeah. he ha- he has had chances. You know, didn't he? Whenever I was, uh, didn't he play at Newport? Which to me is the is the worst performance of the season. Um. And yeah, you know, so I I don't know if he's if he's got a reasonable case, but just the Dwight Gale probably needs minutes to get match fitness, and he mm. and he hasn't had many, and you would just you would just have him even for forty five minutes in the second half, go yeah. on yeah. take just take Joe Linton off, just sort of say accept that that hasn't worked as a club, accept that that hasn't worked, mm. and take him off and. Give Gale a, a spell and see if he can generate something on his own because as a formation, it wasn't going to work, but he might be able to generate something on his own and he might be able to excite those around him. And actually, if you if you think about it, theoretically, Fraser, Almiron, Gale is quite a mobile front three. And if your idea is to um, get on top of um, Brighton as they play the ball out from the back, then that's not theoretically that's not a bad idea, but but you have to have mobility in that, and you have to have, as as Chris says, energy. But you also have to have that chemistry you mentioned, mm. and and that sort of commitment to to doing it together. And so what you have is Almiron, you know, pressing on his own, then looking over his shoulder, you know, with his sad eyes <laughs> yeah. at the fact that no one else is no one else is yeah. supporting him. And you, you, I completely understand them. You know, it's just like you know, you, you know, he's isolated, and he's trying. So he's trying to he's trying to do a one a one man press. Yeah, he looks like you know you know when you you pretend to throw a ball for a dog and then you don't throw it, and the dog looks at you, and 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 it's it's not got anger in its eyes; it's got disappointment and sadness. That's how Miguel Almiron looks at the minute when when he's not getting backed up by the rest of his team. I mean, Chris. In my opinion, I don't know how you feel about this, but but based on those current performances and the body language of the players and all that sort of stuff, I'm really worried that if we go down, if we go into that bottom three, that's it. I don't see us getting back out of it. From a from a, a sort of from a mindset point of view, I I just don't know if the players are strong enough to to pull us to pull us up and out of that position. What, what do you think of that? That would be my fear as well. I mean, actually, as far back as just after the Sheffield United game, when George and I did a piece together on sort of 
the issues in Newcastle. I spoke to someone in around the dressing room and there's a quote within that piece basically saying almost that as if the, the, if Newcastle drop in to the bottom three. At that point, I think there was still 10 points clear. But if Newcastle drop into the bottom three, they didn't think there was the fight or the confidence within them to, to really come out from that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's at, the, at the moment... The only reason Newcastle aren't in the bottom three is because Fulham haven't been able to pick up enough points. They've picked up some to really close that gap. But basically, Fulham not winning on Friday has kept Newcastle from being out of the bottom three. If you look at the bottom five teams in the Premier League, I'd say Newcastle are in the bottom three of them at the moment in terms of the way that they're playing and and certainly in terms of results, two wins and 20 in all competitions, two and 18 in the Premier League, lack of goals. Frightening, isn't it? It, it is absolutely frightening. And it, it, it's, I don't, I, I think that if they were to, to, to drop into it, the only positive I could I could take from that is maybe if there isn't the realisation of the problem that they're in now, then suddenly that, that would spike a reaction from them. But I've seen no evidence to suggest that would be the case. And we there's still, what I found defeatist about Steve Bruce on Saturday is, whereas we've had in the previous weeks, he's talked about, oh, when we get our, our big players fit. Yet when he spoke about uh, Sam Maximan and Wilson on Saturday, he said, yeah, it would be good to have them back. But when they do come back, you know, they've been out with muscle injuries. It could be a while, almost suggesting that he doesn't necessarily think that even if they come back straight after the international break, they're going to be ready. And, and that for me was a concern because he had basically placed so much importance on those two coming back. I think too much importance because yeah. I actually think it's been exaggerated. Certainly Sam Maximan wise, how important he's actually been this season. But that to me sounded like a man who himself is is starting to run out of ideas. And I mean, the the injury thing's interesting, isn't it? Because now we we go into the next uh, the the last portion of the season as well without Isaac Hayden, who who picked up a nasty injury with uh, an accidental collision, which uh, apparently has damaged his knee quite badly, and uh, is probably going to be out for the rest of the season, if not struggling to make it for the start of next season. Um, but I mean, the injuries aside, uh, Michael, we we weren't playing particularly well before these players got injured either. And we weren't picking up points uh, then. So is, is injuries uh, a valid excuse here? Has Steve Bruce got a, a leg to stand on when it comes to injuries? Yeah, he does, I think. Yeah. Um, I think the injuries to to Wilson in particular, um, I know what uh, Chris is saying about Alison Maximum and I, and I would have agreed with him 12 months ago, um, but I actually think St. Maximum has got better this season. And I, I think he's, Whenever he's on the pitch, he's improved. He's he's done the hardest thing, which is create chances. And um, so he he has contributed that. And I think he is a big loss, um, a bigger loss than I would have said, as I say, a year ago or even six months ago. That you know. So I do think I do think there is a there is an argument to to be put that those two players do make a significant difference. However. Um, you know that it's what's behind them has to improve. You know that's that's what you know. It's like a, there's a there's a um, as you say a lack of dynamism in midfield. So there needs to be that kind of um, energy brought into the midfield to try and support those. It's all very well this idea in, mo- in modern football in quotation marks that the attackers have to do all you know are the start of the defence, mm. but the attackers can't do everything. Yeah. I mean, you're asking them to defend and create and score. Yeah. What do the rest of the team do? That's what kind of what Miguel Miron brings, doesn't he? He gives you that that kind of 
uh, that press and, and and he never stops running. Yeah. Um, but but you know you can't you can't expect that of the of that entire front three because they're not those type of players. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying about Sir Maximin actually, and I find it interesting. I think he's become more of a team player, hasn't he? Uh, and a bit a, a bit less of an individual trying to kind of show his skill and his ability, and has actually become more of a team player. The, the setting up of that goal for Joe Willock as well on his debut, I thought was a was a, an example of that. Yeah. Um, just on Joe Willock. Chris, this is this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because he came into the team looking like a really fresh, uh, energetic young lad who who had a point to prove, who really wanted to, who really wanted to make something of his of his time here. Scored a goal in his debut, of course, and his first couple of performances were great. But he seems to have dropped off as well, doesn't he? And and I mean, is it is it the malaise of of, of playing within that midfield that's causing that, or? Or is it the system that he's been forced to, to play? And he's playing kind of wide on the left at the minute, isn't he? It's strange. I thought he played quite well against uh, against Wolves in part. I thought he's possibly the second off the, the best player. I think that the concern for me with well with Willick is is Miguel Arteta basically had to convince him to come to Newcastle and try to sell, sell him this <laughs> yeah. idea that it was good for his development. And he must be two months on thinking. <laughs> Oh my what god! Have I done? <laughs> in terms of if he's, I mean, he's also gone from a team. It plays in a completely different way. Arsenal do try to to, to start from the back. They do try to build forward from midfield. And when and on the occasions where when uh, Willock's been able to do that and carry the ball, I think he's looked good. And I do think he brings something a little bit different to the midfield. But I, I feel for him because yeah, as you say, he's been now shunted into this position, which in theory should suit him a little bit, but I just think that the balance of the team is all wrong and he suffers because of that. I think the fullbacks get exposed because the midfielders are expected to cover back. The forwards no, almost getting each other's way with the midfielders being a bit further out wide. I just don't think there is any balance there at all. And so Willick, is, is, he's still only 21 years of age and he's come into a team, he's come from a team who he's albeit Arsenal haven't been as good over the last couple of years, they're still used to winning. Certainly the majority of his games were in the Europa League. He was used to being in a team that would have more possession and that would tend to win games or at least be on the front foot. And he's had to completely try and change the way that he plays. And I think he has suffered because of that. He's a good player and he, he's better than I thought he was at Arsenal. And, and But he, it sort of feels that he needs to be more central and to be given a bit more you know freedom, but a bit more... Um, um, importance in the team that he's, he's yeah. you know, he needs to be essential to the middle of the team. You know, uh, that that's you get that impression from him that he would he would do well at that. Is there someone who needs to make way in order for that to happen? No, I mean, you know, we've had our we've had our conversations about John Joe Shelby in the past. I don't think he's playing to the level that that we expect of him. No, I, I I've defended him on here before. Yeah, but. If you had, for example, if you had Willock and um, Matty Longstaff or Sean Longstaff, uh, you know, playing centrally instead instead of Hayden, who will be out, and and Shelby, then um, there's not loads of experience, but there should be loads of energy. Yeah, and that be you know, whenever you're thinking about Tottenham, um, you've got you've got to. They, they ha- I mean, Newcastle just have to improve, yeah. and they have to improve in some way, and. If if the only if all they can do is improve in terms of physical energy, then that's something, you know. But they they can't they can't bring Tottenham to St James's Park and sit back. No, you know it, it it's it's just isn't going. That's been proven not to work, you know. But they need them to be able to impose themselves in some kind of way. So if they have a bit of running power in the middle of the park. 
then that might aid that. I know it's not like it's not the most sophisticated of tactics or whatever, but at least it enables you to have some kind of um, rhythm in the middle of the pitch. Yeah. I think it's time to move on now, but I, I think Newcastle need to sort themselves out ahead of Tottenham. We've got two weeks now break, uh, almost two weeks, sorry, and and apparently the team have, have been given a few days off to, to improve their mental and physical well-being, according to the club, uh, and we shall see what happens next. Can I just jump in on that point in terms of the, the optics of it are terrible, and... But what what I will say is I know for a fact that other clubs are doing likewise during this international break. It's not atypical given the schedule that there's been, given the uh, intensity of this season com- compared to previous seasons, that you would have the, the number of days off they've got. So they were off Sunday, Monday, they were, then they're going to be off Friday till Monday, or at least are scheduled to be at the minute. Yeah. Now, the, what I mean by the optics of it is terrible. Is I, I do think some players expected to be back in on Monday. Yeah. I think that they thought they were going to be in, even if it was for a video nasty session or whatever. I think they thought there was going to be a change in exactly what was happening during this schedule. And in, in, in that sense, given everything that's going on, I can understand why people are annoyed and why things should change. But equally, I do also understand the sort of mental and physical yeah. arguments. I know people will sort of go, oh, but, but but it, it it isn't it isn't as straightforward as that as just say it is just dismissed. Now, I do think there is a little bit more to it than that. I, I agree with you, Chris. I think that, that that everybody needs a break. Everybody needs a break from football in a way, you know. And we we all, even us watching it, could do with a few days off it. And so the players need that as well. I just think I I don't think that's the worst decision ever. You know, it, the question is what they do whenever they return to the training ground, and the bigger question is whether the training ground is a happy environment because that's their workplace. That's where they, you know, it's not St. James's Park. That's where they go every day. And that, if you're not in a nice working environment or one that you're happy to be in, um, then that, then that can't be conducive to improvement. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. August 2011, let me take you back. A sunny August day. Newcastle United won, Sunderland nil. Ryan Taylor writes himself into Newcastle United folklore. Stephen Taylor, Niobe waiting to, and Mignolet is beaten. Newcastle United lead in the weird time derby. Stephen Taylor closed in, but did the ball sail all the way in? Well, it's a fabulous effort from Ryan Taylor, but I just wonder about Mignolet's starting position here. He was so far towards his near post. And I think he more or less offered Ryan Taylor the back post. Was it Taylor or was it Taylor? Well, it doesn't matter. I think the goalkeeper's positioning has to be questioned there. Look at his starting position. So far towards the front post, ends up underneath it. Well, I'm not convinced Stephen Taylor gets anything on it. Either way, it's a beautiful free kick from Ryan Taylor. Just wraps the inside of his right foot around this. Look at the action he gets on it. times did Ryan Taylor score from free kicks like that against Newcastle now he scored for Newcastle he claims it and they lead at Sunderland 
well, there you are. Hairs on the back of the neck. Absolute. I mean, I was I was there that day. I was in the away end that afternoon, and I think I've still got the scars for the post the post goal celebrations. It was it was quite astonishing. And Chris, I don't know if you remember this, a young up and coming manager, English by the name of Steve Bruce, was in charge of Sunderland that day as well. He was indeed, yeah. And it was. Uh, I think is this the last time Newcastle won the derby? Is that right? No, that's yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the. The, the stretch of wins that they had, they had a succession. I mean, obviously the one previous one, previous season, they won 5-1 at home on Halloween and they had a, a good run and then subsequently. And that's, I think this is probably one of the reasons why this 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 has gone down so much in sort of folklore yeah. and and, and um, why Ryan Taylor certainly does qualify as a culture hero. I mean, he's got his song, he's got everything that, that, that that's come with that and the fact that he scored against Sunderland. But I think that because it's, because unfortunately it is now, Bordering on a decade since Newcastle actually won one of these yeah. games, and that was and it was a huge moment. It decided decided the match, so that's why it was so huge. It was a massive moment, and Ryan Taylor was playing a left back in a team at the time uh, under Alan Pardew and keeping David Santon out of the team. I know there was a few uh, of my friends and, and and other fans who were who were complaining about the fact that a supposedly classy and attacking uh, left back like David Santon was being kept out of the team by a workman like uh, utility player like Ryan Taylor, but. He's he's described this as being one of his best moments in a Newcastle United shirt, and 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 it really was, wasn't it? Yeah, and and the, the, he he spoke about how the week before was the first time he'd ever played left back. So Newcastle <laughs> sold Jose Enrique quite late in the window. Yeah, and the week before he was asked to play left back against Arsenal. Javinho was playing on on the wing, so he was, he was asked to mark. And he he did all right. Newcastle drew uh, nils each in that game, and then he went into the he went into the Sunday match, and it was it was the second time ever. It was also his his first taste of starting a. Uh, we are time derby as, as it was, so he, it was for him. It was it was such a bizarre experience, out out of position in many ways. He, he was that utility man from Newcastle, ended up playing so many different positions, and then getting the free kick. And he and he and he, as he says, he, he looks, he looked, and he and he saw that there was just such a huge gap to go to, and he was tempted to see it. But yeah. the celebration that that Stephen Taylor puts in, he he thinks that Stephen Taylor's actually got a nick on well, it. Well, yes, the way yeah. that he celebrates. I I actually thought that as well in the in the game. And I mean, you know, Stephen Taylor would celebrate if 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 he's if he's been finished a word search, wouldn't he? He's that kind of person. Uh, but he's. I, I remember that vividly. I remember the ball hitting the back of the net and then I remember I remember chaos. And then I remember seeing Stephen Taylor wheeling away with his arm in the air and just presuming he had scored. But obviously not. It was Ryan Taylor's goal. I think we can actually hear from Ryan uh, now a little bit about that moment. It was my first taste of a derby. I'd never been involved in one against Sunderland. So, you know, for it to be away at the Stadium of Light, um, you know, it was hostile. The fans weren't, let's say, nice when we got off the bus. Um, and, and I think that's where it sort of hits you as a player. You get off the bus and you see that, you know, the, the Sunderland fans have made a big effort to try and obviously upset you as soon as you get off the bus and give you some abuse. And I imagine it's, you know, the opposite way around when, you know, you're a Sunderland player getting off the bus underneath the tunnel at St. James's. So yeah, obviously they, you get a little bit pumped up just off that little walk, to be honest. And then, you know, you're getting ready for the game. We hadn't had a bad result the week before against Arsenal. And obviously I filled in at left back because Jose went. So, so you know, if you like, I wasn't expected to play well, score goals at left back. I was just in there to fill until someone had signed, really, because I, was, I wasn't a left back. I remember Jonas winning a free kick in a good position, to be honest, in, in a position that I'd scored a couple in my time, especially when I was at Wigan in, a, in an area 
you know, I'd scored him before, so I know exactly where to aim, what what to do, and and yeah, I I actually remember watching um, the goalkeeper's position because he didn't half leave that big gap. I mean, bigger than normal. It was just saying, go on, put put it there. And yeah, I still think Stephen Taylor still tries to claim it to the day, but you know, unlucky for him. We're a couple of years down the line now, and and it's definitely my goal. I knew him; he could have nicked it, but. At the time, I didn't really care, obviously, if he did or he didn't. It, we, I'd either set up a goal or I'd scored a goal, uh, and we're winning um, in, your, you know, in the enemy's backyard, if you like. So, yeah, still to the day, every time I watch it, he makes me laugh because he, he runs off like he's just scored uh, an overhead kick in a World Cup final. Um, well, that was tails all over. He, he, he obviously, you know, he wanted to win more than anyone against Sunderland. Over time, it's become for you that, that iconic moment. What, how long did it take before you realised the sort of magnitude amongst Newcastle fans of you, of you scoring that goal? Was it quick that you suddenly realised that it really be taken to heart? Um, it was fairly quick, yeah. Obviously, I didn't realise straight away because I hadn't been in that position before, or I hadn't really been around anyone who'd done that in the past, you know. Um, and you still go, obviously, when you were going to the games, you could still hear the O'Brien songs and, and everything else. But, you know, and then all of a sudden you do what, if you like, what they've done in the past and you get a song. Uh, but it was only a couple of days later we played Scunthorpe in the League Cup and we were losing 1-0, you know, 82nd minute or something. We get a free kick, stick that in the top corner and you just think, you know, that, that then you get a song and... Everywhere you were going, and it was, you know, um, you know, Taylor, can I buy you a drink? And uh, Taylor, can I do what? Can I, you know, can I do something for you? And then, then you start thinking, geez, it was quite big actually. Like, you know, and what it meant was way beyond what what I thought. You know, I knew obviously it, it mean a lot, but then until you actually do to score the winner, and then it, and, and then you realise how much it actually means and, and what it means. Did I read that after the game that you had a pizza dedicated to yourself, whereas usually you would get you would get a single pizza? I think I read this a few a few years ago. That yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. What 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 happened after that game was like any other game, really. We we were playing, and there would be a couple of pizzas on the bus just to throw a bit of carbs back in yet and until you have a proper meal. Uh, so yeah, we uh, we got back on the bus and. Instead of there being just a, a big load of pizzas stacked up, you know, there was them all stacked up. And then a special delivery was one for me. And I was, I mean, I can't even remember what was on it, but it was just like it, the, the chef had actually wrote in the box, like some nice words to me, yeah, like, you know, like thank you and stuff like that. So, so yeah, the, uh, it was a, <laughs> that's what I was like, all oh, right, maybe, you know, getting a special pizza for, for scoring the winner. That's a nice little touch. I can't remember who it was who nearly scored towards the end, but there was nearly another yeah. goal as well. I mean, obviously that would be nice and comfortable, but in some ways, I suppose that almost cements your sort of uh, position in that circle because it wasn't the second. Well, goal, yeah, it, you know, it, it 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 wouldn't be as obviously as well known if it was two nil. Uh, but yeah, I remember we it was Dan Goslin who had the chance, went through one on one, and I think the goalie saved it, but. Obviously, after the game, you, you made up. You've still won. I wasn't good to Danny's miss, but you know it could have been a lot easier than last final few minutes. But 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 yeah, I, I'm always. I always think well, if he did score that, what would things have changed a bit more? I don't know, but you know I'm thankful he missed in the end. Do you remember when the fan got you to hold the picture of the the SMB 
uh, thing. And, and how you, can you just explain how that sort of came about when you were in the car with the? Um, uh, yeah, well, to be honest, every 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 day after training, you'd always have kids there or, or people ask you to sign stuff at the at the training ground entrance. And um, yeah, just one day, this this kid was just like, "Oh, can you hold this piece of paper?" And before you know it, I was having a picture took. But it's not, I, I I love like you know. I'm a Newcastle player. I'm all up for the banter against the enemies and stuff like that. I, I won't shy away from it. It's just, you know, there's no hard feelings. It's just, you know, it, it, it's football banter. Um, and and it's not, would I hold it up again? Yeah, would you? Because at the end of the day, it's it's a bit of fun. I'm sure, you know, the stick I get on, on social media from Sunderland fans, you know, you know, they or am I supposed to, you know, report these people for giving me with a football banter? You know what I mean? It's, yeah. You give it, you take it, you give it, you take it. It's just one of them. So lovely to hear Ryan uh, reminiscing about those moments there, and 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 what a what a goal that was, and 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 also I think Ryan Taylor, Michael, you 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 know a little bit about him, and and he was a great he was a great servant of Newcastle, and, and probably quite underrated as a player, wasn't he? A bit of a Swiss Army knife player. He was, yeah, utility, yeah. Whenever he was saying that kind of, it was seen as a sign. I remember it was seen as a sign of where the club were going, um, or where they, you know. Um, downwards in in terms of you know this wasn't this wasn't Patrick Clavert you know this wasn't Michael Owen, so, um, uh, this was signing someone from Wigan but actually Wigan were Wigan were pretty good then and, I, and I, I saw I saw a fair amount of Wigan you know uh, at that time and and he was really good and he was he was just he was very clean you know he was he was clean the way he passed the ball and the way he struck it and his free kicks obviously were proof of that. And he and he was smart. I mean, just him saying there that he saw he was Mignolet in goal, wasn't it? He, he saw Mignolet, you know, in this huge gap. And when you see the goal again, you sort of immediate that's that's the first thing I thought. Well, the first thing I thought was why is Stephen Taylor celebrating as if he scored. And then the second thing was, um, why why is um, why is there so much space? And is is Millet four foot six? You know, it's just like he he really small in the in the frame of the goal. If you watch the replay of the goal as well, Millet takes a tiny little step to his right just as the ball's hit, and he actually opens that space up even more. I think he's waiting for the whip over the wall into that into that near corner, you know, and he just takes a step. And as he takes that step, that's that he's done. As soon as he's took that step, there's no there's no chance of him getting any any of that ball. But an absolutely incredible, an incredible moment. And Chris, I was I was trying to think back about this game, and I couldn't I couldn't honestly think of anything else that happened in the entire match. I don't remember it being a particularly great game of football. I think I know. I know uh, Phil Bardsley was sent off for a second yellow card. Um, <laughs> that's that's one of the only things I know about the game. I know Johan Kabai possibly could have been sent off for a for a tackle on Phil Bardsley, and Seb Larson should have been sent off for a for a handball on the line from a Joey Barton header. But apart from those little tiny bits of memories, I don't really have a, a great memory of the game. No, it wasn't uh, that the the Ryan Taylor in terms of specifics beyond the goal, beyond Gosling missing, and beyond the potential handball on the line. He couldn't remember many specifics. I mean, he said that that it was 
it was the occasion that sort of gets the better of you, and that, that because it was and it was a scrappy game. I mean, he he put in a he put in one tackle at one stage and, and got booked, and it was it was a typical sort of derby tackle where it was about five minutes after the ball had been passed on, and he just <laughs> yeah, slid yeah. in and sort of in front of in front of the away fans. So it wasn't it wasn't a particularly great game. It was a cagey affair. So it was only second game of the season. So it was an important game for both teams in terms of where they were going to be heading that season. And, and they ended up going sort of different ways. Obviously, Newcastle built from that, the positive momentum, the, the, the start of the season and went on to, to, to finish fifth that year, whereas Sunderland had far more of a, a struggle throughout that season. So um, I think that the, proxi- the proximity to the start of the season coupled with the, the actual magnitude of, of sort of we are tying derbies really uh, did impact on the game and the game itself w- was poor. And that's part of the reason why one moment of brilliance is remembered so much because it was, it was in stark contrast to the rest of the game, really. There's a lot of angst in those games. There's not much. Points. I hate them. I absolutely hate them. I hate the derbies. I, c- I can't stand them. And, and being, being in the away end that day as well, the, the kind of, the release when that ball hits the net is, it's unbelievable. I mean, you, uh, you just, it's chaos. You fall. I, I mean, I cut my shin open. I, I, I was nearly choked out by Mark Corby, who was sat next to me, um, stood next to me, should I say. But then everyone in unison turns to the Sunderland fans and flicks the Vs and show them, waves the, waves the signs and all that. And, and that's, it's those moments that you remember as a football fan. You know, I couldn't really, I couldn't really tell you anything else that happened in the game, but I'll never forget that moment when that ball hit the net. It was, it was absolutely amazing. Michael, as someone obviously not from the Northeast, what, what is it, what is it like as witnessing the sort of game? Because obviously you've, you've obviously done a lot of old firm games and other things like that. What, what is, what is the time we are a weird time derby like? Uh, I was going to say it seems uh, like there's an increasing animosity, but actually the animosity may have always been there and I just didn't notice it as much, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you, you, it is really vitriolic and um, unpleasant. It probably is unpleasant, actually. You know, whenever you go to Ibrox and uh, Celtic run out, I mean, that is unpleasant. You know, like it's really, really unpleasant, um, and you know that it, it's not on that level, but it's close. You know, it's close to that kind of. The, there's an electricity, isn't there? There's that kind of, as, as you say, um, that you hate. You hate it. Like loads of fans hate yeah. it. Loads of fans hate it because because of the feeling in their yeah. gut that morning on the morning and the days building up to it is so strong. So they, they hear it, and then there's obviously the big release, if you will, yeah. and then there's the massive, there's the massive depression mm. if you lose, you know, that kind of. So it has, it has a really disproportionate effect on you, doesn't it? You know, um, it does. So I, I um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty wild, like it really is, and I mean, it's I think it's quite hard to to describe the the feeling to in in sort of comparison to a normal. Premier League game where, you know, you might be disappointed if you lose a game or you might even get a bit angry if you lose in the last in the last few minutes. But it, it almost feels like there's so much riding on those derbies, even though in the grand scheme of things, let's be honest, they're not particularly important, are they, when it comes to the 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 kind of final positions in the league and all that sort of stuff. They, they haven't been for a long time. The relevance of them is is very much in our own heads, isn't it? And and 
I remember there was a there was a derby game at St James's Park where um, oh, I think it was um, Nicholas Bentner scored for uh, for is it, was it Bentner? No, that's yeah, yeah. They, they scored a penalty uh, and Shola Amiobi scored a scored an equaliser in the last minute at the at the Gallagher end and I remember walking down the yeah, yeah. One, I remember walking down the steps and I could feel my heart pounding in my chest and I had to stop. I had to stop walking and take a moment and, and catch my breath. And I thought, it's not worth this, is it? It's it's not, it's not, there's just no need for this. Not good for you, that. It's, it's yeah, that's not healthy, is it's it? It's not. Can you imagine what it's like being a manager? Oh, God, I know. And I mean, we're going to get onto that soon, aren't we? But, uh, but yeah, but there we go. I mean, I mean, Ryan, Ryan Taylor um, gets iconic status for the, for the goal and, and for that moment. And, and Ryan Taylor over the wall song is born uh, while the fans are locked in the away end, uh, waiting to be escorted back to the coaches and home to Tyneside for a blurry evening of celebrations. And that's exactly what it was. Um, it was a, it was a great night and a great day. And I remember um, vividly um, and I don't condone this kind of behavior, but I did find it funny at the time I was stood in a bar in Newcastle city center that night. And somebody came over to me and said, would you like to buy a seat? from the Stadium of Light and opened his jacket to show me the back of a, of a seat that he had taken home with him, which I thought was, I don't condone that, but I thought it was hilarious. Well, there we go. Um, as Chris said earlier, uh, that Ryan Taylor interview is part of a series of cult hero articles over the next few weeks uh, throughout The Athletic, uh, not just on uh, with Newcastle. Uh, keep your eyes peeled on the app or the website for plenty of great memories from all our dedicated teams. We're going to be back in two seconds just after this. Hello listeners, sorry to interrupt your show, but we've got a small favour to ask. We're currently doing a bit of a survey to find out more about you, your podcast listening habits and the sort of adverts that are most relevant to you. If you feel like helping, please head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. That's pretty catchy, so I'll say it one more time. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. Thank you. Right. So, um, lastly, uh, the the big topic, really, that's on everybody's lips at the minute, and it seems to be a host debate amongst the pundits and the fans uh, all up, up and down the country. Why hasn't Steve Bruce been sacked yet? That is the question that we're asking. Um, in my opinion, from what I've seen this season, there's been a few times when Steve Bruce could have been sacked. Uh, Brentford away stands out in the mind, Sheffield United, and of course, the game against Brighton uh, at the weekend. By every single metric uh, that you can measure football by, Newcastle are quite comfortably an appalling football team. Uh, And with Premier League managers with more than 250 games under the belt, only two have win percentages of less than 30%, one of them being Steve Bruce and the other being Brian Robson. Chris, why hasn't Steve Bruce been sacked yet? What what is going on? I mean, it's a very good question. And as I said, when George and I wrote the piece on on sort of Saturday night, I mean, it felt it did feel like the end, and it felt like it should have been the end. And I still think it should have been it should have been the end. I think it, in many ways it felt like his position had become untenable. I think that even from his pronouncements, I think he almost accepted that he, he gave an interesting phrase when he said that I have to accept the consequences. He said that after the game, and I think that he, my understanding is that the players, at least initially, thought that he may have been sacked there and then, and then I think that they were surprised in because I think they thought that then it'll happen in the coming days, and it obviously hasn't. Um, Newcastle, unusually for them, um, 
or sources close to the club were keen to get information out on Sunday morning that he wasn't going to be sacked. They wanted to sort of end any speculation about that, rather that continue over the course of the international break. They wanted to, there was quite offensive language used. I so in many ways that, that, that I know a lot of Newcastle fans are insulted by it anyway. That the idea that, that that of loyalty towards Steve Bruce from Mike Ashley, which um, basically seems like more of a field a fealty rather than loyalty sort of thing, and and that. And that what what exactly that means, I don't really know. He's been manager for, for for twenty months. I don't really understand what that what exactly that means. Um, but also, I think that there is a lot of sympathy still within the club about the the effects of COVID that, that that had on the club. I think some players still are suffering from those after effects. Obviously, the injuries as well, and the idea that that Newcastle. Well, I think I think basically if Fulham had won on Friday night, I think Bruce there's a there's a, there's a far better chance of Bruce would have been gone. If Newcastle were in the bottom three, I think that there's a there's a higher chance of Bruce would have gone. But but Newcastle, as they seem to do quite often under Mike Ashley, are going against seemingly what the vast majority of fans want, which is they want a change. They think that that without a change, then it's an it's seemingly inevitable that Newcastle will go down. Newcastle in the past have twice changed managers and, and ended up going down anyway. I would say that view and things is, seems to be internally in the club is a slight revisionism of history because I don't think that's, that's exactly what happened. Um, and that I don't think, I think in many ways it was because the change came too soon, but also actually certainly under Benitez, there was a massive uplift in the way the team played and they had just ran out of time in the end. So um, I can't really answer your question with an answer which anyone is going to want to hear. It's just various reasons there, <laughs> yeah. and seemingly, and uh, Newcastle just don't just don't want to make that change. And, and Steve Bruce, as things stand, is going to be in the dugout for the Spurs game. Michael, from your point of view and uh, and in uh, in your experience, why why do you, why do you think Steve Bruce hasn't gone yet? I mean, from from a devil's advocate point of view, what 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 might be the thinking behind keeping Bruce in position? Well, as as I said before, I think. If there is a strategy, um, then they may have looked at the remaining games and thought we can get six or seven points and that might be enough. So they may, you know, um, and they may have had a conversation with Bruce, which has sort of emphasized that. And he said, look, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll rejig the formation. We'll be able to, you know, dig out six points, whatever, you know, that, um, I don't know if that conversation has gone on, of course, um, but it may—it's—it's it's just very. Um, I, I think I think that as 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 a neutral, I think the the question is is it's not for me to say whether someone should or shouldn't be sacked. It's whether it's but the key a key word is 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 the situation tenable? Is his relationship with the dressing room tenable? Do they view him as someone they respect? Um, who can get them out of this situation? Are the players really desperate to do that? Um, are they being motivated by him or are they going through the motions? These are questions that the, at the top of the club they need to be asking themselves. And then they have to ask themselves, um, do they have a viable alternative who, who will be able to motivate um, and, and get the necessary improvement in performances? I think I think in a more in more broadly across football, there's something else that's going on, and that is about um, the structure of your club and how you play. Um, and Newcastle are not flattered by comparisons with Brighton. They're not flattered with comparisons with Fulham. Never mind Leeds. 
or anything like that. And Bruce is not flattered by comparisons with Parker or Potter, never mind Bielsa. So you've got so from from your fan base perspective, there's there's so little to cling on to. You can't see an overall strategy, you can't see a work in progress, and you can't see victories being dug out. So you might be able to accept one of you know you might be able to accept the last of those um if it was happening at the expense of the previous two but i just think that football fans are far too um smart and and actually know and understand the club which is why 10,000 of them walked away from newcastle you know so that that's that's the fact you know because they understand they can see what's going on they can see the gradual degeneration of the club now, obviously, the focus falls upon um, Steve Bruce as the manager because of um, performances such as West Brom away, which is really, you know, I think was worse than Brighton away. Um, yeah. That so it becomes very difficult for the fan base to, to believe in anything. It does. I mean, and also the the fans have been have been frustrated recently by by different sound bites coming out of the broadcast media, but there's almost been a bit of a change in tone, Chris, hasn't it, over the last couple of weeks? Um, Jeff Stelling, for one, was was somebody who put a tweet out on the 20th of March, okay, Newcastle fans, please don't hammer me, but now I think I understand. Uh, and there is, there is, uh, it feels like a sort of tide change of, of, of opinion uh, from, from the broadcast media uh, uh, over what Newcastle fans have been saying for a long time and, and have been roundly uh, well accused of being delusional or, or expecting too much. Now I think people are coming around to it and understanding where we've been coming from all this time. Yeah, well, I always find this, this is a bit of an issue. I suppose it's, I, I'd use the example almost in reverse of, of Arsenal because every time I watch Arsenal and I don't watch every single one of the games, but every time I watch them, I was, I'm always quite underwhelmed. And yet there seems to be at least a portion of Arsenal fans who love the fact that Arteta's there and think he's doing a good job and could see the the team's heading. And I always think, right, well, I, I need to I, I need to listen to what they have to say because they watch Arsenal every week. They're they're consumed by it. They see all of what goes on. And I think that the frustration that a lot of Newcastle fans have and that I've, I've had listened to some pundits over the, the period of time is that they just look at the league table and particularly after the Sheffield United game, looked at it and said, oh, well, the 10 points clear the relegation zone. What is the issue here? And it's that it's been heading in this direction for so long. And as Michael says, there's been nothing to cling on to to think this is what this is what Newcastle United are building towards. And yeah, I think more people are now seeing that now Newcastle are in this perilous position now that you see the Brighton performance, as Michael says, wasn't a one-off. That was what's almost what's more shocking about it. It wasn't a one-off. This There's been five or six of those this season. There's been Brentford away. There's been Sheffield United. There's been West Brom. There's been Newport. It, it, there's been Brighton at home. There's been so many games like that. that this is... And I think that when Michael talks about... Be, is it is it tenable? That that's where I'd come to as well. I, I wouldn't advocate necessarily saying that, that anyone should be sacked or anything like that. But when I look at Steve Bruce's position now, and I am writing a column about this at the minute, which will, which will be up tomorrow, and sort of explain the situation this week, but also sort of looking forward, is I ca- I I can't see a scenario where Steve Bruce is manager come the start of next season because if Newcastle go down 
I know that there's been some pundits who suggested, well, who would you want more than, than Steve Bruce to be the manager? But the situation that they've got themselves in and the the disconnect that there now is, from my understanding, with at least some people in the dressing room, to be able to bounce back at the first time of asking, you're going to need to galvanise a squad. You're going to need to create unity. So I can't see how he's there in that scenario. Even if they're scraped to survival, I then go to that Michael mentioning that 10,000 fans already weren't going to the stadium. Newcastle have also already had a full year or it will be more than a full year of not having had fans in ground. So they've lost the money from behind closed doors games there. How are you going to encourage supporters to come back in the, the start of the new season? If the vision is Steve Bruce is still there and you're going to have more of the same. And so I, that's why I think it's got to a position where it feels like it's the long goodbye. And, and it feels to me as if between some point between now and the start of next season, Steve Bruce will go, but I can't at the minute comprehend that. Now it's Mike Ashley's Newcastle and anything could happen and it could well be that he is still here. But when I put all those factors into one situation, I can't see a scenario where he can still, in theory, be there given all of those factors I've just mentioned. Is it a big Mike Ashley gamble, uh, Michael, on Newcastle staying up and, and potentially being taken over in the summer? Is is that the thinking here? Is it is it just a is it just a game to him? Trying to second guess Mike Ashley is well, <laughs> has been proven. Should know better than us that question, really, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, has been proven impossible in the past. So yeah, I he does. Yeah. He he does like a gamble. He he likes the idea of a gamble. He likes the idea of being a maverick. He he likes this uh, impression of himself. Um, but the fact is that you, you to run a football club, you have to have a strategy and a structure. I'm so, I'm sorry if that sounds boring, but that's what you need. And no, no, it's in truth. modern football, that's what you need. It's not. It's clubs are so much bigger now. It isn't just about you know picking eleven and going out there. Everything stems from the pitch. Uh, that's first and foremost. I agree with that. But you have to have a broader structure. So, and Newcastle haven't had it for ages. You go back to McLaren's departure. You know, it went on for days and days and days. You know, so whenever Chris says about a long goodbye, you know, you know they've already had one. And the only reason it was ended when it was ended was because Rafa Benitez made himself available. They did not go and chase Rafa Benitez. He made himself available. So if he hadn't done that, what would have happened? And I think in the situation we are now, that may be the, that may be the case. Who, who is a viable alternative mm. to take the top? Graham Jones? Well, I mean... <sighs> I mean, it's with the greatest respect to Graham Jones. Um, you know, he's it, he doesn't exactly inspire confidence, and in, and in, in, in with his appointment, does he? I mean, maybe till the end of the season, but it's not the it's not the bigger picture, is it? Really? I mean, there's fans have talked about Eddie Howe, have have spoken about other managers, but which which sort of ambitious young progressive manager would want to come and work under this under this structure under this regime it's and Mike Ashley's never gone for an appointment like that though either it's well no he hasn't that's true I mean it's more likely to be Mark Hughes isn't it or Tim Sherwood or something like that than it is to be anyone else the one thing we know is Mike Ashley does not want this football club run from the dugout yeah that's why Rafa Benitez isn't there that's why Kevin Keegan isn't there that's why Alan Shearer isn't there because he doesn't want it run from the dugout he wants it run from the boardroom which he controls so Whoever comes in has to work within those parameters. And if and if if you were being generous to Steve Bruce, you would say, well, he he actually understood that. He understood that in a way that Rafa Benitez didn't, you know, because Rafa Benitez tried to win Ashley yeah. over and he just couldn't. 
and it was never going to happen. Whereas Bruce sort of knows Playing the game, isn't he? The hierarchy yeah. and knows, yeah, and knows his role in it. And actually, that meant he was able to sign Wilson Fraser um, and Jamal Lewis last um, summer, which were good sign, which were solid signings. Everyone agreed at the time. That was that was probably Steve Bruce's high point that moment whenever he signed those players, because it looked as if he had won an argument upstairs rather than you know influencing people downstairs, and that that is what everyone has to remember is that Mike Assey won't want. So Eddie Howe, I can't see Eddie Howe coming in because as soon as someone explains this to him, he'll yeah, just go, yeah, yeah. "Well, I don't want that. I want I want to work within a club mm. that's got a strategy and has a." two, three, four, five-year plan. Well, chaps, we're going to wrap it up. Michael, thank you so much for coming on and, and sitting in for George this week. It's been an absolute pleasure having you, mate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. No problem at all. Uh, and thanks for listening. Um, with it being International Week, there's no game to preview. And the blessed relief is we won't have to pick the bones out of another West Brom or Brighton debacle next week. Instead, we're going to be doing an AMA, AMA or should that be an AUA? Uh, ask us anything. Whatever you want to call it, we'll be fielding your questions. So please make them good. And we at least want some positive ones to chew over. Uh, If you want to ask us anything at all, you can give myself, George and Chris a shout on Twitter using the hashtag pod on the time. My handle is at Taylor and Payne. Chris is at Chris D.H. Woff. (laughs) I had to think about that there. And George is at George Corgan. As always, please remember to hit subscribe so that you don't miss a show. Leave us a review and a rating if you're feeling particularly generous. And we'll be back next week with another Pod on the Time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Message Perchy yesterday, who I interviewed last year, to, just to ask him if he had any questions. Yeah. He wanted to be put yes. Um, so I'll get, I, I want to go on some of the other Newcastle period in a little bit. But first of all, so he says, Can you ask him about what happened in Portugal when we were playing Benfica and me, Taylor, and Gosling were playing FIFA? <laughs> I can't believe he's brought that up. No, oh, I didn't think this would ever get out, but um, I can't believe he's asked you. Yeah. <laughs> so no, we um me and my girls were quite um we were really good friends. We were around each other's houses and all our girlfriends and wives got on really well. Uh kids and everything uh, similar ages. So we all we got on really well. Um so we played FIFA a lot and you know, we used to put we used to have a couple of quid on it, pay game and stuff like that and you know, sometimes just got up and down, but we, we I wasn't even supposed to be in Benfica because I was injured. But yeah, um, but but Pard took me because he wanted me to be involved. Um, because I was nearly back to getting fit again. Um, so you know I went out there, done a bit of training with the team. I done a lot of running with the the, the physio. So and it, obviously, and then I got to watch the game. But yeah, the night before, I think it was, <laughs> so we were playing FIFA, and the two of them used to get under my skin so bad. I'd love to just play out from the back on FIFA and like make them just run a lot. But they'd win the ball off me and then nine times out of ten they'd score. And they used to always say, He'll give you a chance. He'll give you a chance. Like and it wound me up. So playing in playing in Benfica, I funny enough, I gave a goal away. Two of them were stuck stood there. One was playing me, the other one. 
and the ball flying, he'll give you a chance. And I just got up and I just punched the telly. <laughs> and the telly just shattered. I was like, oh no. And then I ended up having to cough up uh, way more than what the telly cost for sure because they just added probably about four tellies on top of what I ended up paying for it. Yeah, but I had to, I had to um, cough up for a new telly yeah, in the hotel. I had a moment of rage, let me tell you. It was down to them to just wind the meal. The Athletic.